Hey everyone, uh, it's Michelle here, and this week we're going to have the second part of my conversation with Matt Wensing about competitive advantages and moats for indie software businesses. So in the first half of this episode last week, we talked about network effects uh, and switching costs and intangible assets, and we get into the rest of the main types of competitive advantages, as well as some sort of fake or uh, things that seem like sources of moat, but aren't really in the end of this episode. So here we go. Let's get into the next one, cost advantages. And I think this is actually one of the easiest ones for, especially for indie founders to take advantage of, which is, is, is it cheaper for you to provide a service that a huge company would be much more expensive for them to do. And, you know, remote work is, you know, now, you know, big trend and everything, right? But, I mean, even going back to 2006, right, when you founded your first company, mm-hmm. for a long time, um, and I think still to this day, those of us running small companies, we have a built-in advantage because basically all of us are remote. Now, granted, that might mean you're just one person working in your home office or from your kitchen table. But the fact that you don't have a five, 10 year commercial real estate lease and all of these buildings you have to keep lit and heated and staffed and security and the fact that you don't have, you know, several hundred employees. Yep. That has advantages and disadvantages, but that is can be a huge cost advantage um, that you yes. don't have those kinds of things weighing you down. And especially if you're moving into a market, if your cost advantages mean that you can cut your competitors' prices by 50%, right? You can beat them by 50%, especially if, I mean, and this is really applying to, you know, sort of a, a highly competitive market from... Um, sure. From an economic sense, right, where there's 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 minimal differences between companies, right? If you can go in and undercut everyone significantly, and you can make it easy for them to switch, then you have a very good advantage going into that market. Completely, and I think the only thing I'll add to this is those are all the there are real physical costs, real estate, co-location, etc. I, I think about the clock running during a meeting and thinking about what it costs, the cost advantages, like how much does it cost for this meeting to happen to make this decision, et cetera. Like, like intangible yes, the company, costs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, which, which is real payroll costs, which is real, you know, cost of acting. And so you, the advantage you have is yes, the software is better. Technology is cheaper, hard drives, distributed work, but never underestimate how much time and money has to be spent by, you know, an incumbent or somebody else to get to the same place as you <laughs> mentally, right. Or, or decisively, or from a product standpoint. And that, that's kind of what keeps this whole engine going, right. Is that it's, it's inevitable that, you know, if we succeed, our businesses turn into these incumbents sadly, or, but, but what wonderfully sadly <laughs> at the same time, but then somebody else can, come up and and do things cheaper faster better and so that you know the the, the cost advantages here to me the real challenge is how do you maintain those cost advantages as you get bigger which we could talk about for hours because then you're getting into things like yeah how do you empower and keep your teams autonomous and fast and agile and learning 
even when you're 500 employees versus versus five, right? And that's, I would say cost advantage is something like you said, we start with the real challenge is if you can keep it, mm. you know, that's, that's powerful. <laughs> you know, going back to the analogy I used earlier about boats, the amount of gas that a 27 foot racing sailboat <laughs> is going to use is much, yeah. much less than that yeah. of a container ship, right? Um, mm-hmm. The sailboat only uses the gas to get into harbor or, you know, if there's no wind, right? Sure. The container ship is just blowing through fuel, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. But at the same time, if they're competing not for speed or agility, but for how much cargo they can they can transfer, and that sailboat sure. is trying to compete with the container ship, right? It is very right. hard to enter into the container shipping industry, right? And there's a reason yep. that all of the little hobby sailboats are not competing with Maersk, right? And so right. that <laughs> actually gets into the next one, which is size yep. advantage, which is, I think, one that is really not available to indie founders, but is one for yep. us to be aware of as we're looking at the different factors that give our competitors advantages over us. Um, and, you know, and the example of that is, you know, to what we were talking about earlier, uh, think about like telegraph wires, right? Like going back into the 1800s, like Western Union was basically the Google of um, the technology <laughs> industry because they owned all of the cables. Yeah. They were such a massive company that if you it's wanted crazy. to send a telegraph, you wanted to have telegraph wires installed in your office, which people did, or you wanted to be a telegraph operator, you went to Western Union. Because they were so massive. Didn't have a lot of choices. Which right. is, I mean, it's basically a monopoly, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this gets into the to what we were talking about regulation. You know, it, it, quite frankly, it is, is something that a lot of, especially big investors, are looking for. They're looking for something that could be a future monopoly. Think about uh, Uber, for example, right? Wanting to have a monopoly yep. over the taxi market. Um, yeah. Which can often lead to regulation, but I think the bet there is that in the 5, 10, 15, 20 years, how old is Facebook now? Before regulators are finally wise to the fact that it is a monopoly, <laughs> the mm-hmm. potential for outsized profits is enormous, even if you only get yeah. to enjoy that monopoly for 5, 10, yep. 20 years. Worked for Standard Oil. <laughs> Still working pretty well for Standard Oil. Yeah, I. this is interesting because those companies at some point can turn around and say, I mean, this is this is Amazon, right? Amazon, economies of scale on the logistics side is absurd. At some point, those companies can exhaust their opportunity or get regulated, one or the other. And then they really become platforms for others, which kind of feeds the innovation loop again. So Amazon says, okay, well, we've reached this point. How about we release AWS? the world or we've reached this point how about you can ship something for your own business using amazon's supply chain right and rather than let it discourage us i'm sort of saying the upshot here is that through selfish interest (laughs) you now coming on the scene with an idea can take advantage of some of these economies of scale that have been built out for you that your maybe your competitors in your category didn't have when they started so the fact that I could start a weather company in 2006 and have effectively infinite hard drive space for pennies 
was an economy of scale that I had access to that my competitors never did. And so you want to be Amazon. If you can be Amazon, be them. That's like the old saying. If you can be Batman, be Batman, because <laughs> that's the best position <laughs> to be in. Be yourself unless you can be Batman, I think is how it goes. Uh, <laughs> but if, if you're not that, at the very least, you can take advantage of this growing platform effect. And I think that's where it really gets frustrating is more like, okay, Facebook, you're this giant graph and utility, but you're not a platform for anyone. You're not sharing that. It's not creating wealth for others. It's not something anybody else can build on. If it were, you end up with Windows or Microsoft, maybe in its less monopolistic days where, oh, I can build applications for the whole world now and it's just going to work because I can build on this thing called Windows. Facebook and others are really uh, not fostering innovation when they're closed down from sharing that platform with others. And I think that's where it gets in trouble. But if I were starting out, I would kind of try to flip the economies of scale thing around and say, what are what are these new platforms that are being invented that I can use that you know current market leaders... Yeah, they're having a meeting next Friday to talk about the role of AI in like in clip art or something like that. But meanwhile, you're sitting there going, wait a minute, like I could generate clip art using an AI bot like today? <laughs> that's that's amazing. And I don't even need to have a bunch of meetings. So yes, it works both ways. Um, and I agree that you're not going to get rid of the platforms, but building on them can be smart. That's such that's a good a point and a, and a good inspiring point. And I, you know, I think for us, right, we compete with Google, but we also wouldn't be where we are without Google, right? Because yeah. we could tell everybody that we are competing with Google on Google. And I think mm. that really shows the difference between yes, Facebook and yes. Google, quite frankly. Um, yeah. Which, you know, I, I mean, a conversation about regulating them is a whole different conversation and probably Platform one risk, that, for right. us to have over beers when I'm in Texas not yeah. um <laughs> I, I think I think people would uh tune out as I talk about the um but it's fascinating. about Brandeis's yes. uh perspective on, <laughs> on competition and you know all of that right um but yeah like you can use the fact that there are these big competitors um you can use their platforms right we also yep. compete with AWS. We also got $5,000 in free AWS usage when we started out, right? Um, yep. And actually, yep. they, they entered the market after us, you know, so dust off my shoulder sure. a little bit. Um, <laughs> but you, you can use those platforms to build something else. I think the difference there is really that, I mean, social media is just such a weird anomaly in, in, in so many ways. And that's also something that you, you know, if you can't like go out and really build a new utility. I mean, I guess Elon Musk is trying and I guess Google tried, right? And actually they, they basically Takes failed, right? Like is Google Fiber, wasn't it like running in Kansas or something for a while? And then... I think it's barely made it to my neighborhood in Austin, Texas. So oh, it is. Not, okay. It is it's yeah, somewhere in it the is, Midwest. It is. Okay. It but is. It's but the very... pace, it's not, it's not setting the world on fire. Yeah. I mean, that shows you it's how tough. hard it is, right? And how defensible that oh, kind amazing. of a size effect is that not even Google can enter yes. into this, what, 100, 130-year-old market. That's uh, very tough. <laughs> Something about atoms that are very difficult to move around and mountains and all right? kinds of things, right? It's yeah, just, I mean, it's... But, but, it's durable. But if but hey, right? We can, we can yep. all use the internet cable that's already been laid to do things. That's right. We can use that's Google right. to do things. We can, you know, we can use yes. all of these platforms. 
Um, yep. So I think to close, and we're, we're, we're nowhere close to being done yet because there's two more things we'll talk about, um, are <laughs> fake sources of moat or things that appear to be sources of moat that actually oh, aren't. And yeah. the two examples the book cites, and, and I'm wondering if we can come up with more. The first one is brand. And the <laughs> second one is actually team and the idea of betting on the jockey, not on the horse. And <laughs> I think these are really interesting because brands, for example. So, so one of my favorite parts of this book is that it has a chart in it of moats by industry. And you see that, you know, you know, utilities, of course, are at the way top. Um, software is very respectively, you know, in the top quarter. Uh, so hats <laughs> off to us. Um, but then you think like most of the if I asked you to name five brands off the top of your head, I bet most of them would be consumer brands and things like consumer staples. Mm. Right. Toilet paper, Band-Aid, Kleenex. Right. Like all of these things. They're actually poor sources of moat because somebody else can just make something and those brands are so easily destroyed um mm. and consumers can be so fickle when it comes to a brand as well um it's yep. also very easy to switch tissue brands in a way that it is not to say switch internet providers and then yeah. also I the one on teams where and you know it actually kind of made me think of um people who um follow Justin Jackson probably know his example of you know it, the, the wave you pick is more important than I think I'm, I'm butchering this Justin but it's like the wave you pick is more important than your surfboard right like the industry you're in is more important than the JavaScript framework you pick um, you know that is going to shape the returns of a business the industry you're in and those underlying s factors, like if you can successfully build a business in an industry that has potential for moat, but studies show that the impact of a CEO when controlled for the industry, that actually doesn't make a difference, right? Like hmm. you can put a mediocre CEO in charge of a utility and they will get better returns than a superstar CEO running a uh, consumer staples brand that has limited potential for moat. That's really good. Yeah, I, I think brand, the origin of brand is interesting because it was very important and very powerful back in the day when advertisers could first start saying something like, you know, buy Fleischmann's, you know, yeast because that's going to be, that's the name you trust. And it really was, it actually started out as a consumer safety, really. Like, I need to know that. I know who made this. I'm not just going to the general store and buying a jar with no label on it. Like, and I know that it's relative. It's the same that I bought in Kansas is the same that I'm going to buy here in Oklahoma. Actually, I wonder if the word brand that you to that point. So my, my husband is a big whiskey fan and he was reading this book mm -hmm. on the history of whiskey and mm -hmm. saying how, um, you know, going back to, I think prohibition days and beforehand in the wild West, which was then, you know, Kentucky, um, <laughs> They the the distillers started putting the wax tops on top of their bottles with their brand, like a cattle brand, on top of the bottle. So you knew that the distributor had not adulterated or mixed it in with something because it was a very big problem that the distilleries would it's a great example send their their liquor to the distributor 
or the stores and then they would dilute it and add in other things add in turpentine god no water uh tobacco spit i think was a big one um right and so if you bought whiskey that had you know that maker's mark wax seal on it with the brand on top you Mm -hmm. knew exactly what you were buying yeah yeah and i think this goes back to even you know uh, kings and queens sending you know letters to each other with their branded seal on that wax letter and it's a right it's exactly. a guarantee it, it's a guarantee of quality yeah based on how much you trust that leader that company that whomever and so brand started out super powerful for that reason i think brand has become so much flimsier now in a mm. way there's some brand allegiance but ultimately if you talk to a company like unilever or anheuser-busch and i've talked to these companies Brand really means relationship with the vendors and distributors. Mm, it means shelf space. It means distribution. Yeah. It means we can ship 50 tons of beer to this location this week. And we have all of the best spots in the Walmart you know, aisle for us. So I don't care if the local brewer does whatever. He doesn't have distribution. He doesn't have the relationships. He's not going to get shelf space. And so... The biggest threat to brand is things like Dollar Shave Club and online because now you're saying we have distribution. It's just going to be online and we'll send it to you if the consumer can suffer through that. But then we talked about Amazon supply chain. Brand has become more difficult to defend over time because we don't worry as much. We have things like, oh, the FDA, these certain guidelines, consumer protections. That's protecting us from drinking something with what tobacco <laughs> whatever in it, <laughs> right. right? So we don't have to worry about that on one hand. And on the other hand, we have the internet to create distribution. And so I agree, brand is easily, uh, it's easily spun up and it doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't carry the weight that it used to. I, I, I can agree with that. I think it's a tremendously powerful door opener. I think it, you know, if you want to start a conversation with somebody, we're all, most of us are guilty of this still. People are introducing themselves. Oh, where do you work? Well, I do this, this, this. And I before that, I was at Google as a whatever, whatever. Like instantly you say that one word and people attribute like whatever that word means to them, they instantly attribute it to you, right? So yeah. Oh yeah, I'm not saying it's not powerful. Barand is powerful, but, I'm not but it's saying not super it's not defensible. As defensive. Yeah. Is it defensible? Correct. Are those brands yeah. easily tarnished, right? Because it could be someone oh, says, sure. oh, I worked at Google. And their reaction could be, wow, you must you. be one of the minds of your generation. Yeah. Or, Evils. geez, yeah. you must be really unethical. <laughs> what did you work on? Like I know. selling advertising to, to children, like, right? Know. You know, like, wh- so it can it's really true. go both ways. Um, yep. It's still very powerful. It's still worth something. I think, you know, sort of, mm. you know, the in many ways and i think this is something you you kind of alluded to of the 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 outrages of the day right um that could very easily be your brand like what what is it what do they say Mm. your goal every day is to not be the main character of twitter uh (laughs) right that shows how easily a brand can be destroyed like you know, I think of yep. um, there. So, so when I was when I was starting out, I, I worked at um, an agency, and one of the um, competitors in in our area was actually a huge agency, had tons of big brands as their clients. They were pretty much the premier marketing advertising agency in our area. Mm. And then I remember that 
one day one of their staff members i guess was going on a business trip to detroit to meet with their customer who was headquartered in detroit who was an auto brand and they Hmm. tweeted from the brand account something to the effect of geez people in detroit can't effing drive Oh, my gosh. Now, they should not have tweeted this from their personal account. They definitely should not have tweeted it from the brand (laughs) account. And that basically killed that company. They had, I want to say they had over 100 employees. Like, they were the premier agency to be at. And it killed their business almost overnight. I think they shut down within six months of that. That's devastating. Um, yeah, and and so it's it's easily lost. It's, it's easily very lost in a yeah. way that cables underground or uh, tightly Correct. integrated uh, API integrations or um, every yep. student learning Photoshop or Figma now, right? Like that. Or the ability isn't to search the entire quite, planet's internet, right? Exactly. Right. Those things are not <laughs> lost quite as easily. And then the other one is team. And how, and I think this is, I think it's kind of an interesting critique from an investor of investors that investors tend to focus on the jockey, you know, to what you said, oh, this guy coming in, guy really, uh, went to Harvard. Great. Oh, and he knows, you know, he's my old roommate's son. He's really, really smart. Let's give him $300 million for what he wants to build. Right. That's brand (laughs) there. That's betting on the jockey. And yes, it can be an advantage to a certain extent, as you know, as we were saying earlier, right? If that jockey has 20 years of experience in the industry of insights and contacts and understanding of the of the problems in that industry, that can be an advantage. Yeah. But then if you build your company around that and all of the knowledge in that one person's head and then they get hit by a bus, <laughs> that is actually not defensible, but it's still important. Yeah, I think team is likely misunderstood most of the time meaning you've attributed this brand name to this person who got into that college because reason that isn't helpful to the business or right you or this person's super strong at leading but actually that means that they've created a cult of personality and it's actually a weakness in the organization that you've never seen before and so i think people are just i think there's different uh, investor approaches to this one is I'm going to um, Sequoia, their approach to investing is we want to invest in a market and an opportunity that's so big that even a poor team, you know, poorly executing team is going to succeed. Like you can't help but succeed because it's going so well. And then of course you have people congratulating themselves when it does. And you're like, mm, was it you? Uh, on the other hand, at the early stages, you do have people who say, I really believe that I know this person and that they have the qualities and traits that I'm looking for in a founder or in a leader and I'm going to invest in them. I think those are both pretty strong strategies. I think the team one that you mentioned is more of a misattribution of one of those, which is I'm like ascribing things to this team that are pretty thin Mm. (laughs) and may not stand the test of time. Mm. I think that's good nuance there. Yeah, because I, I, I mean, I truly believe that teams make a huge difference. I think we would all agree on that. It's just, what do we mean when we say team? To unpack it, as they say. Yeah. So pulling this around, you know, I think it's, I, I think one point I would like to underscore is that 
while I think every indie founder should understand these concepts, they should read the little book that builds wealth, they should read Stratechery <laughs> and uh, or Farnham Street or you're matching um, the O'Shaughnessy podcast. Mm-hmm. It's good to know about these things, but also that it's okay that you don't have them right and not to let it intimidate you like and and i speak from personal experience here that you know geocodia like we are in a perfectly competitive market from an economic perspective like best Mm. case scenario our end product which is the latitude and longitude coordinates for a location are exactly the same as our competitors right that is a perfectly competitive market and yes we have very only be wrong Exactly. We have very, we, I think we have very good packaging around it, right? We make it easier to get that information in various ways. We have features that our competitors don't. But, you know, like, like people sometimes ask me whether we've considered getting funding or whatnot. And I quite frankly feel like it would almost be irresponsible for me to go out and ask an investor to invest in a perfectly competitive market where I am full aware that we mm. do not have that potential for competitive advantage that would make this a hundred million billion dollar opportunity. That doesn't mean it's not a good business, right? To what we said earlier, that doesn't mean that those brands that aren't as defensible as say telegraph tables, uh, cables, like this doesn't mean they're not good brands or that they're not good businesses, right? Mm -hmm. I have a great business. I'm very happy with it. Yeah. But I am also not deluding myself about the dynamics of the industry and that also means that when I am listening to customers and you hear those two people say something that's really interesting and really not being served by anyone else, you dig for that because that's where the sources of competitive advantage are. Yep. And in a way, that's, you know, that, that's that intangible asset that you are creating for yourself that yeah. does not depend on industry dynamics, that you, you can create for yourself even in a perfectly competitive market. Yeah, that's really good. I, I I think it's just taking $10 million in funding and turning it into 15 over the course of 10 years would be amazing for some people. But f- for most investors, yeah, you're not, you don't have a machine where you can put 10 in and get 200 out or something. It's not that. But is it profitable? Is it growing? Is it defensible? It could be all those things for all the reasons we talked about at the beginning. But not every business is is the first kind. And frankly, even in the utility businesses, what happens, they're profitable and they're making profit, but a lot of that upside also gets regulated out or they reach maturity. Or they're they fixed have, profits, right? They, they can only yeah, have 10 or 15% exactly. profits, right? Or they're st- Exactly. Yeah. So their stock price ends up maxing out for completely different reasons. It's like, congratulations, yeah. you won the game of Monopoly. <laughs> but now, like, that's the end of the road. Start something else. Um, but which are both great businesses. They're durable uh, and defensible. But yeah, I, I, I agree. Talking to, I love that we sort of end up back at the fact of talking to people is the origin of some kind of competitive advantage. Or figuring out where they are at least, right? Like even yeah. if you have even if you have an app that Matt sitting there thinks that he could code up in a weekend or that Microsoft <laughs> or whatever could you know code up in a weekend, right? Even if you have that kind of a business where people are copying it, there are going to be sources of competitive advantage. They may not yes. be sources of a moat that would make Sequoia perk up and give you $200 million or whatever. 
but they might be enough to build you a nice, tidy little 5, 10, 20 million AR business. And yep. quite frankly, I think most people would be happy with a 100,000 <laughs> MR or, or ARR business, right? Yep. Like, so yeah. even if you're building something in a perfectly competitive market, like me, right? Yeah. You can still find those sources of advantage that give you a profitable business that can and and then over time as you have that profitability as you keep going you can build those other sources of competitive advantage that are very hard for people to replicate overnight and are more if not defensible it'll at least take them a really long time to swim across your moat that's right Exactly. A wide moat is also very good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, yeah. There's a whole conversation on wide versus narrow Deep moats. And, but yes, e- exactly. even if, look, even if you've got you know a little like wetland that gets damp once in a while, sure. that's better that than someone like being fun. able to you yeah. know walk up to your your castle or realistically your tent and take a sledgehammer to it. Yeah, that's right. right. I completely agree. <laughs> very good. Very good. Well, thanks for the yeah. Thanks for the chat. Super fun. This has been a delight, Matt. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on and nerding out uh, about moats with me. And I'm sure Loved I it. and uh, everybody else will uh, see you around uh, on Twitter with your uh, insights, <laughs> your fortune cookies, as Peter calls them, and your um, <laughs> your gentle form of trolling, where we know that you, <laughs> we know you're trolling because you mean well and you and you want us to be better. It's not coming uh, from a mean place. I, I appreciate that. I, I actually do really, I do really mean that. I, I'm trying to not be bland and generic. We all, we all have our brand. So, thank you so much. Really great to be here. All right. All right. Take care, Michelle. Bye. And that wraps up my conversation with Matt Wensing. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and uh, got something out of it um, too as well. We'll definitely link to the books and some of the resources. Uh, we mentioned, but quite frankly, I think everyone would benefit from reading the little book that builds wealth, even though it's written for investors. Uh, it'll really give you some ideas and things to think about for your business. And especially as you build understanding of your customers and your market uh, on an ongoing basis, help you identify um, those problems that you hear about that could lead uh, to competitive advantages and moats in the long term. Um, And now I want to give a huge thanks to all of our listeners who become software socialites and support our show. You can become a supporter for $10 a month or $100 a year at softwaresocial.dev slash supporters. Chris from Chipper CI, the daringly handsome Kevin Griffin, and Mike from Gently Used Domains, who has a nice personality. Dave from Raycut, Max of Online or Not, Stefan from Talk to Stefan, Brendan Andrade of Brightbits, Team Tuple, Alex Hillman from The Tiny MBA, Remy of Memo.fm, Jane and Benedict from UserList, Kendall Morgan, Ruben Gomez of SignWell, Corey Haynes of SwipeWell, Mike Wade of CrowdSentry, Nate Ritter of RoomSteals, Anna Mast of SubscribeSense, Jeff Roberts from Outsetty, Justin Jackson from MegaMaker, Jack Ellis and Paul Jarvis from Fathom Analytics, Matthew from Appointment Reminder, Andrew Culver at Bullet Train, John Coster, Alex of Corso Systems, Richard from Stunning, Josh, the annoyingly pragmatic founder, Ben from Consent Kit, John from Credo and Editor Ninja, Cam Sloan, Michael Copper of Noosey Proposals, Chris from URL Box, Kaylee of Tosslet, 
Greg Park from Trait Lab, Adam from Rails Autoscale, Lena and Alex from Recapsi, Joe Mazzalotti of RailsDevs.com, Proud Mama from Applenet LLC, Anna from Cradle, Monsef from Ruby on Mac, Steve of Be Inclusive, Simon Bennett of Snapshooter Backups, Josh Smith of Keyhero.io, Jesper Christensen of Form Backend, Matthew of WorkCited, Chris of JetBoost.io, Daryl Shannon of Docomatic, Laravels, the community for women, non-binary, and trans Laravel developers, Arvid Call, James Sowers from Castaway.fm, Jessica Malnick, Damian Moore of Audio Audit Podcast Checker, Eldon from Nodal Studios, and Mitchell Davis from RecruitKit. Thank you so much, everyone, for supporting us and keeping us on the air. And thank you to Matt Wensing for joining me for this conversation. Colleen and I will be back next week. Huge thanks to all of our listeners who've become software socialites and support our show. Chris from Chipper CI, the daringly handsome Kevin Griffin, and Mike from Gently Used Domains, who has a nice personality, Dave from Recut, Max of Online or Not, Stefan from Talk to Stefan, Brendan Andrade of Brightbits, Team Tuple, Alex Hillman from the Tiny MBA, Rami from Hovercode and Rocket Gems, Jane and Benedict from UserList, Kendall Morgan, Ruben Gomez of Signwell, Corey Haynes of Swipewell, Mike Wade of Crowd Sentry, Nate Ritter of Roomsteals, Anna Mast of SubscribeSense, Jeff Roberts from Outseta, Justin Jackson, MegaMaker, Jack Ellis and Paul Jarvis from Fathom Analytics, Matthew from Appointment Reminder, Andrew Culver at Bullet Train, John Coster, Alex of Corso Systems, Richard from Stunning, Josh the Annoyingly Pragmatic Founder, Ben from ConsentKit, John from Credo and Editor Ninja, Cam Sloan, Michael Copper of Nusi Proposals, Chris from URL Box, Callie of Toslet, Greg Park from Trait Lab, Adam from Rails Autoscale, Lana and Alex from Recapsi, Joe Mazzalotti of RailsDevs.com, Proud Mama from Applenet LLC, Anna from Cradle, Monsef from Ruby on Mac, Steve of Be Inclusive, Simon Bennett of Snapshooter Backups, Josh Smith of Keyhero.io, Jesper Christensen of Form Backend, Matthew of WorkCited, Chris of JetBoost.io, Daryl Shannon of Docomatic, Larabels, a community for Larabelle developers underrepresented due to their gender, Brendan from Feederloop, Pascal from Sharpen.page, Lynn Romick from Conbini, Arvid Call, James Sowers from Castaway.fm, Jessica Malnick, Damian Moore of Audio Audit Podcast Checker, Eldon from Nodal Studios, Mitchell Davis from RecruitKit.